Hi, this is Neil Satin, the host of Relationship Alive. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say that if you find this podcast helpful, please consider making a donation to help support the podcast. You can do that by visiting neilsatin.com slash support or texting the word support to the number 33444 and following the instructions. And you can choose any level that feels right to you. Thank you so much in advance for your help in ensuring that this podcast can continue. I also wanted to mention that if you haven't picked it up yet already, you can grab my free uh, top three relationship communication secrets. These are communication tips that you can incorporate easily into how you communicate with your partner, and they're based specifically on things that will help you grow closer and more connected to your partner, even if you're communicating about something challenging. You can get that by visiting neilsatin.com slash relate or texting the word relate to the number 33444 and following the instructions. All right, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. This is a show for all the nice guys out there and all the people who love them. And maybe those who want to love them more or those who are really aggravated at them or whatever it is, this is a show for you. There's this conundrum, which is how do we, how do we get along with each other and how do we avoid being jerks? How do we avoid um, being the, the stereotype that we associate with um, masculinity and still at the same time actually inhabit our masculine selves in a way that's that's generative for our relationships, that's connecting to the men and women that we're in relationship with, and that keeps us alive and vital and ignited as we move in the world and especially as we move in our relationship and keep our relationships alive and vital. On today's show, we have an expert in redefining masculinity on man's terms, but in a way that also leads to connection and passion and that kind of vitality that I was talking about. His name is Dr. Robert Glover, and he is the author of the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. So I'll tell you that this book was recommended to me by a friend of mine a number of years ago. And when I saw the title, I thought, this sounds horrible. And (laughs) what am I going to learn from this book? And then the more that I read it, the more I realized, oh my God, there's so much here uh, that I hadn't even really thought about in terms of how I define myself as a man in the world, either in response to things that I had seen growing up or in reaction to them. And uh, there was so much for me to learn about how to inhabit myself uh, authentically in a way that allowed me to come to relationship with authenticity as a man and to allow my partner to also experience me that way and to reclaim my sexuality in a healthy way and so much that we're gonna get to in this episode. 
Uh, as always, we will have detailed show notes for you. If you're interested in downloading them, you can visit neilsatin.com slash nice guy. Or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And I'll send you a link to the show notes for this episode and all of our other episodes. So let's dive in. Dr. Robert Glover, thank you so much for being here with us today on Relationship Alive. Neil, it's good to be with you. And uh, just listening to your introduction, I'm excited. (laughs) That's all good stuff. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. So let's just start out with the basics. What is, what's a nice guy? Well, a nice guy is, I define him uh, in the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, is a, a, a man, a young, it could be a teenager, young man, but it's, it's a guy who usually at a very early age internalized incorrectly a belief system that they're not okay just as they are. And they either have to become something different to have the approval and love of others and or hide certain things about themselves that they're afraid will um, attract uh, non-approval or a negative response from other people. So um, basically in a nutshell, the average nice guy tends to be a people pleaser. He tends to avoid conflict. He often struggles making his own needs a, a priority. He often has no clue about what boundaries are or how to set them. And often they find themselves frustrated either in attracting the opposite sex or once in relationship, they often struggle having the kind of satisfying relationship uh, that they want. It also can play out in work and career in terms of playing it safe, um, spending too much time uh, majoring in minors and not going big or going bold, uh, too much problem solving for other people. So there's a lot of ways that it manifests. But basically, it's a guy who believes he's got to be something different than he is in order to uh, have love, sex, and uh, success in life. So how would I know in listening to that description, and maybe you're already listening and saying, oh my God, that's me, or oh my God, that's the guy that I'm with. But just in case I'm really not sure, what's a, what's a kind of a quick self-diagnosis that, that I could do to see if I fit the nice guy category? Well, maybe the simplest self-diagnosis is do you spend a lot of times feeling frustrated? If you're a single guy, are you frustrated to get women to notice you, pay attention to you, want to go out with you, want to date you more than once or twice, want to have sex with you? If that's a constant frustration, it could be that you're a nice guy and your passively pleasing ways or your avoidant ways do nothing to um, turn women on or make them want to or would make them even notice you or make them want to spend time with you. Uh, if you're in relationship or if your relationships don't seem to go well or last real long or even if you've been in a relationship for a period of time, if you seem to be constantly frustrated that your partner's not available for sex as much as you'd like or she seems depressed or angry or critical or unavailable and nothing that you do seems to make it better or, or, or makes her more available or happier, 
Or if you're frustrated uh, in work and career where you look around and you think, well, these guys around me aren't any smarter than me. They're not any more capable than me. But how come they get the promotions? I stay stuck. I, I, the boss keeps loading me up with work, but I don't get recognition for it. So frustration is a very common experience for the average nice guy. Got it. And there were also a few other indicators that you mentioned in your book that I, I thought were good that involved um, like your, your friendships with men or your connection to your father. Um, can you talk a little bit about how our relationships to other men might look if, if you're a nice guy? Well, you're, you're right. Um, the whole masculinity, whether it's connection to our own masculine self or the connection to other men, beginning with our biological father, perhaps stepdad, perhaps other men who've influenced us in life, and then it's, to peers, is, is a, a telling factor for the average nice guy. Um, in a nutshell, most nice guys are trying to be different from other men. I, like a lot of nice guys, try to be different from my father. I identified him as, as angry, moody, and not treating my mother very well. And I, like a lot of nice guys, grew up listening to my mother complain about my father, even though she was married to him till he had died about eight or nine years ago. And growing up, I listened to women complain about all the bad men out there, the jerks, uh, the men who treated them badly or just objectified them or only wanted sex. So I, I tried really hard to be different from those bad men, uh, beginning out to please my mother and be the good man that she wanted her sons to be. And uh, she even shared with me at a young age that she was raising my brother and I to be different from our father. Um, a, f a couple of years back, she actually apologized for that. She said that wasn't a very healthy thing to do to my sons. So she actually figured that out, which, which I'm, I'm, I'm proud of her. And she and I have a very healthy boundary relationship at this point. But I grew up hearing her, um, her dissatisfaction with my father. And then, as I said, you know, as a teenager, listening to women, listening to the angry feminists of the 60s and 70s, uh, complain about all the bad men out there and all the derogatory terms used for masculinity, I didn't want to be that bad guy. So that cut me off not only from my own sense of masculine self, but it also had the tendency to cut me off from other men. Now, I've, I grew up having guy friends because I played sports, but I spent a lot of my time, like a lot of nice guys, seeking out the approval of women. I call it hanging out in the nursery, where we get to be around women, whether it's mothers, sisters, female friends, women who've put us in the friend zone. Um, we hang around them because we, we can talk with them and they seem to approve of us and, and we get a sense of validation because we're not like the, the jerks out there. But these women are usually not in a position or not interested in having a partnership or a sexual relationship with us. So we, nice guys tend to be pretty disconnected in general. And uh, I know when I started my own nice guy recovery, even before I knew I was recovering from the nice guy syndrome, one of the very first things I decided I needed to do was to get reconnected with men. And I joined a men's group, started going back to the gym, joined a racquetball league, started playing volleyball, uh, started a softball team. I got connected with men again. 
and um, I was married when I started my nice guy recovery and and reconnecting with men actually had a very positive effect on that marriage even though over time the marriage did come to an end but just connecting with men made a very significant difference in that relationship yeah and hearing what you're describing um, I'm reminded of in your book how you you talk about how it's interesting that uh, generally in our society so many of the teachers are women um, Boys are often raised primarily by their mothers um, because their fathers were away at work. And of course, now with both parents working a lot of the time, I'm sure that that creates even more disconnect for children from like a positive adult role models. It's at least a challenge that we have to face in our society. And um, and what, one phrase that you said that really stuck with me was this notion of who, what it means to be a man being defined by the women in our lives. And, and you're right. And when I was growing up, you know, I was born in the mid-50s, so growing up in the 50s and 60s, uh, most moms stayed home with their kids. Most families were intact. Or you didn't see a lot of divorces. Uh, as you've said, a lot of that has radically changed. And whether we're talking about um, men my age or men that are younger, your age, my son's age, most men nowadays grow up highly influenced by women, whether it's in uh, our mothers, pre uh, preschool, elementary school. I often do a poll of guys and ask how many male teachers they had between preschool and junior high or middle school. And, and the average for the average guy in the average group is about one and a half male teachers. I, I had one in all of that time. So basically, I, I say that, for example, moving from third grade to fourth grade not only involves learning your reading, writing, and arithmetic, but it also means learning how to please a woman and because those are your strongest influences. And the core issue is, is that for men to feel whole, uh, to feel a sense of fierceness, a f sense of competence, a sense that they can conquer their fears and, and conquer the challenges of life. We need men to initiate it, us into that scary world of the masculine. So what I wonder is, um, and I, I want to make this clear for everyone listening, when we say, um, okay, no more Mr. Nice Guy, what we're not talking about is some reactionary move to like, okay, no more Mr. Nice Guy and yes to Mr. Jerk or Asshole or something like that. Well, yeah, and that's that's kind of the paradox of the title of the book. Everybody, I'm going to assume most of us at some point or another, men and women, have uttered, no more Mr. Nice Guy. I'm not putting up with this anymore. Um, maybe we start humming or singing Alice Cooper's song. Um, so we've all said it. We've all reached a point where we've just said, you know, enough is enough. And at the same time, we would wonder, logically, why somebody would write a book teaching men to be not nice. So there's a paradox in the title that um, is somewhat intentional. It, it, it gets your attention and creates some cognitive dissonance, maybe emotional dissonance, that might make you want to pick the book up. And I know when, um, when my publishers, which included Barnes & Noble, when they published the book 15 years ago, 2003, when it came out, they anticipated um, maybe a lot of controversy. 
maybe some backlash from feminist groups or women's groups um, just because, you know, the title seemed a little bit provocative. And none of that ever happened. I, I maybe in, in the last 15 years have received a grand total of three negative emails from women who was obvious, you know, they hadn't opened the book and read it. You know, I was noticing, too, that um, if you expand, I mean, I understand the 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 desire to reach particularly the nice guys and and give them a hand here. Um, but that habit of like people pleasing, pleasing and um, self-abdication and and putting yourself last and like there are a lot of people who have these problems. And I think your book is actually really instructive for people who are just learning how to inhabit themselves more fully, be more authentic, create great boundaries, and think about like how they actually want to be in the world, in a world where they're not doing whatever it is they do in order to try to make other people happy. Well, and you, you've used some terms like authenticity and integrity that to me are, are such core terminology. It's, here's, here's a paradox, and I address this really early on in the book. And the paradox is that even as nice guys are walking the planet, um, believing they're nice guys. In fact, you know, if you had talked to me in my 20s, I would have said, I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet. And I took pride in that. I didn't understand why everybody else didn't have a similar philosophy. But here's the paradox. In general, nice guys are often anything but nice. We have no real integrity. We have no real authenticity because we're basically, you know, you know, licking our finger and then holding it up to see which way the wind is blowing. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to create conflict. And we, we, we go along to get along. And there's no integrity in that. There's no truthfulness in that. And I thought, for example, that I was a pretty honest guy until I actually started working on myself and looking at myself. And I thought, I really realized I wasn't. Um, if I thought somebody might be upset at me, I would leave out certain details of information. I would just flat out lie. Oh, yeah, I, I sent that report off when I hadn't. Um, or, you know, if I thought my, my wife might buy, be upset at me, you know, if she called and said, when are you coming home from work? I'd, I'd tell her, well, I'll be home at 5, even though I knew I wouldn't leave till 5.30 or 6. But I didn't want her to be upset if I said, you know, I'm leaving at 5.30 or 6. Then when I got home, I'd make up a story. I'd actually be rehearsing the story all the way home as to why I was late, the bad traffic, this and that. And I came to realize that I, I was dishonest about just about everything that I thought might trigger a negative reaction in somebody. So the, there's, there's that dishonesty. And then when you add to that, the nice guys are not good at asking for what they want. They're not good at taking responsibility for getting their needs met. They're not good at setting boundaries and limits around other people's behavior. So we have that frustration that we spoke of. Resentments can build up. When, and we're going to need to talk about covert contracts sometime today, you and I. But when our covert contracts aren't being fulfilled, resentment builds, and then we end up being passive aggressive and that our anger comes out in indirect roundabout ways like criticism or put down or um, humor that isn't funny to the person that is, you know, poking at or we might have something that my ex-wife called victim pukes, where things just build and build and build to finally something sets it off. And then everything that we've been storing up just comes vomiting out of us. And I remember my wife at times would ask, well, how long have you been upset about that? And I go, 
uh, I don't know, six months to a year. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> you know, when we finally recovered, well, why didn't you just tell me about it? Well, I, I didn't want to piss you off. Um, and But yet it came out in such an ugly way for me. So nice guys, paradoxically, are often anything but nice. And that's why when I teach men about making your needs a priority, uh, about living an authentic and integrated life, about being differentiated, about telling the truth in all situations and, and facing fears and dealing with conflict head on and setting boundaries. This actually turns men into men that that people want to be around. It makes us easier to live with. Um, it makes other people more excited about spending time with us. So, you're right. No more Mr. Nice Guy is not just a reactionary, okay, you know, quit being a doormat, start being a jerk. It's about being an integrated male. And it's about living a life of, of integrity, of authenticity, of passion, um, w with direction. And in general, most people find that pretty attractive. So before we get into the recovery project, um, what... What about the partners of nice guys? Um, could, because I can imagine that there's a little bit of, like some of it could be excitement and some of it could be nervousness about like, because that dynamic is always on some level co-created. So what do you tend to see when nice guys start their recovery? What kinds of... Um, agreements, and you were talking a moment ago about covert contracts, um, need to start shifting in order for that to really um, take root in a new direction? Well, one of the things that, that I talk about in the book, and I don't remember the exact figures I gave, it's been a little while since I wrote these, but when I first started working with nice guys who are in relationship, I gave them about a 50-50 chance of their relationship surviving um, for a number of reasons. One is the relationship probably began for a lot of dysfunctional, co-created type reasons for both the man and the woman or the man's uh, gay, both him and his partner. And so I gave it about 50-50 chance. And as I worked with nice guys longer, I, I started saying, well, you got about a 40-60 chance, a 40% chance of a relationship surviving nice guy recovery. I'm probably at about 75, 25 now. You got about 25% chance of the relationship surviving. And and I'm not that's not because I'm, you know, negative or a doomsayer. My my doctorate's in marriage and family therapy. So I've worked with a lot of couples. And when a nice guy starts working on his issues, I, I found a, a number of responses from the partners. One is that the woman can be amazingly supportive of it. And I've, I've had countless nice guys tell me that their wife or girlfriend gave them my book or women will email me and say, how can I give, you know, how, how can I get my boyfriend to read your book? And I'll tell them, just give it to them. Um, you know, sometimes they'll be offended, but most guys will, they want to please their woman, especially if they're a nice guy and, and they'll at least, you know, uh, make an attempt at reading it. So a lot of women are very supportive of of the guy becoming an integrated male of showing up with consciousness and presence and honesty and transparency and those are all really good things and women seem to like those things um but even if they're supportive of it it can be a little bit scary because the system is going to change and nobody knows i call it second order changes I, I didn't invent that term but it's what happens when you change something fundamental in the system and therefore the system will no longer be the same 
and but you don't know how it's going to be different. And that's true when anybody starts any kind of recovery program. Doesn't mean if you go into recovery for alcoholism or addiction or codependency, nice guy syndrome, it doesn't matter. It will shake things up. And, and that's often a very good thing in terms of then letting a couple build on a healthier foundation. Sometimes it, it just it blows it up and, you know, people find out we shouldn't be together. So there's, there's the partners that are very supportive of the change. There's the partners that are maybe scared by the change and, and are just going to kind of watch from, by, from the periphery, maybe even sabotage it a little bit because it's out of the ordinary, but they don't know quite what to think about it. And then there's the partners that just out and out resist it. Um, and these are usually, especially when I see in a heterosexual couple, these are the women usually that cannot take any ownership whatsoever of their part of the dysfunction in the relationship. I, I call it, they stake out that moral high ground that every problem they have is, is the, the result of the guy. And, and so no matter what the guy works on and starts doing, the woman is resistant because she wants to blame her unhappiness and the, and the dysfunction in the relationship totally on the guy. And often when guys do enough recovery, they realize that's never going to change. And those often come to an end. Um, so there, there's all kinds of different reactions. But as I said, in general, women are very supportive of what I teach men and uh, a woman that's got a degree of healthiness and, and a, a sense of wanting to, to have a good relationship will often be supportive of her partner making these kind of changes, even if they're scary. And, and they can be scary. Yeah, wow. There's so much that I'd, that I'd ideally want to un unpack in what you said and um, probably won't because we only have so much time today. And I want to get into the, into the heart of the matter of how you actually take this on. That being said, one thing that did strike me when I was reading No More Mr. Nice Guy, especially um, the second time around, because I first read it a long time ago, and um, and I read it you know very recently in preparation for our conversation, and um, it was well a couple things. One was that I think that there is this balancing act between what we learn as individuals to bring more of ourselves to the table. So, which is a lot of what No More Mr. Nice Guy is about, right? It's like, how do you bring yourself to the table, especially in all those ways that you're, you're lying or you're, you're being, um, you know, half of you or not even close to half of you in order to keep the peace. Um, and then, you know, hopefully your partner also is in a project of self-development and personal growth. But then there are, of course, also all of these relational skills that aren't natural for people. Um, and they're also not really modeled very well in our current society. So it, it made me think like, oh, yeah, I would imagine that that there's still some relational skill building that would need to happen even after you've sort of staked out. You're like, okay, I'm not, a I'm not just being a nice guy anymore. I'm being me. But you still need to figure out how to come to the table of relationship in a way that's, that creates connection with your partner um, versus like asserting your individuating yourself to the point where you just end up disconnecting over time. And you're right. And, as paradoxical as it may sound, um, it, it may not be quite as challenging as we think. Um, and, and you're right. 
when, when it comes to the whole relationship skills things, most of us have not seen relationship skills modeled very well by our parents, by family, by society. And, and part of the reason is, is as a species, we're really not wired for long-term monogamous relationships. That's why they're challenging. It's not part of our DNA. Um, we've only had an idea of, of pairing up monogamously maybe for, you know, few hundred years out of our, our 200, you know, two million years of, of human evolution. And we've only had a romantic ideal of couples getting together out of love and attraction for less than 200 years in, in some cultures and maybe in Western culture and in Eastern culture, um, it still doesn't happen. People get together for economic reasons, for, you know, family arranged relationships. So we're, we're not, we're not wired. We're not built for long-term monogamous relationships. Now, that doesn't mean we can't do them. And my basic premise around relationships is if we choose to set ourselves about having a, a long-term, committed, monogamous relationship in the light of we're not actually wired very well to do that, if we do it with consciousness – it will turn into a, a very powerful personal growth machine for everybody involved. And it kind of has a teeter-totter effect. As one person in the relationship works on themselves and challenges themselves either by being a better listener or being more assertive or setting better boundaries or, you know, working on their own personal issues, they're going to grow. And the other person in the relationship, if they have a desire to be in relationship with that person, they'll see that person growing and it triggers actually a little bit of fear and anxiety saying, wait a minute, that person's growing, they're changing, they may lose interest in me. And believe it or not, that can actually trigger then a desire to challenge self and start growing. And maybe then as that person works on their issues and brings more to the table as they grow, that unsettles the teeter-totter a little bit. And the other person goes, oh, wait a minute, my partner's challenging themselves, they're growing. I don't want to lose them. I got to keep challenging myself as well. And if this is done consciously, an intimate relationship can be um, hugely powerful in terms of, of stimulating personal growth. Now, when I said it, it's not as difficult as, as we might seem. And maybe all we got to do is, is kind of, you know, go back in time a little bit to see how relationships worked in different times. And one of the core pieces that is really clear to me is that men spent a lot of time with men. It's only been maybe the last 50 years in Western culture that men have spent a big chunk of their time with women, whether it be in the workplace or with their wives. Now, doesn't mean we can't do it. Doesn't mean it, it, it doesn't work, but it is it's really new in our personal evolution. And that's one of the core things I see that a lot of men have in their intimate relationships, especially in a heterosexual relationship, is that so much of their time is being demanded by their partner. And, and we want to spend time with our partner. But I found that the very best foundation to build a healthy relationship with the opposite sex is having good same-sex relationships. That's true for both men and women. The, the healthier our same-sex relationships are, the healthier uh, opposite sex relationships we can have. And then maybe from there it's as simple as, um, okay, talk about the things that scare you. Learn to listen. 
practice respect towards each other, um, ask for what you want. And those are, are not all that complicated uh, things to do. Often we have to have some support I, uh, to do them. I, I read some books every single day. Like I said, my PhD is in marriage and family therapy. Uh, I've been married for a total of over 25 years. I've worked with countless couples. I still read books every day that that go to the heart of relationship. Um, I read Thich Nhat Hanh where he talks about having compassion and listening deeply to, to others. And, and I, I need a reminder of that. I read, <laughs> da- I read David Data's book, Way of the Superior Man, about talking about how man shows up with consciousness and presence and, and, and helps me understand why my wife does what she does in various situations. So, yeah, it, we need constant reinforcement but as I said, I'm convinced if, if we connect well with same sex, we can bring that energy into our opposite sex relationships and then just work on those basic things of listening, communicating clearly, having respect, having compassion. Um, and I, I would say if I was, had to define my relationship with my wife, I mentioned to you before we talked, I've been married six months to, to my wife. And... Um, the best way I would define it is is like we have this loving competition to see who can give the most to the other. And, and it's not codependency. It's not like I give this to you so then you'll approve of me and like me and never leave me. It truly is we, we have this deep desire to bless each other's lives. And, and I, I love knowing that I bless her life. And she loves knowing she blesses my life. And... Yeah, I think I, I think I heard um, Jeff Zeig, who I hope to have on the show at some point, talking about this term he invented called tapaya, which is how he describes love. And it's taking obvious pleasure in another's happiness. It's an acronym. So yeah. that, that sounds like exactly what you're describing. Um, I'm One of the things that, that came up for me, um, like in your, in your book, for instance, let's... Um, let's jump ahead a little bit and hopefully everyone will kind of catch up with us and we'll, we'll fill in the gaps, but you talk about um, developing a healthy sense of sexuality. And in particular, you talk about um, how men can learn to masturbate uh, without using fantasy, without using pornography as a way to really get in touch with their physical experience of pleasure and to actually be really connected to themselves and their pleasure. And the reason I'm jumping right to that is because that to me sounds so profoundly healing for probably most guys at this point. I think they've tried to find um, young men now that are unimpacted by pornography and they can't find them in order to have like legitimate studies. but but so profoundly healing and why that's important is that if you stopped at, um, well, okay, I'm a guy and I've just, I've learned to put my needs aside. And so now I'm going to start articulating my needs more clearly, particularly around sex. But if your needs are totally based on this fantastical version of sexuality, that's not, that's all based on fostering dopamine and, um, you know, objectifying women, then you're not going to be able to speak to needs that would be more connecting and 
um, not only connecting you to your partner, but also connecting you to your own sexual self in a way that's not based in um, or not mired by shame or fear. Um, so that just shows me like how important that healing journey is for um, for nice guys, and in particular as a couple, for for the couple to be able to support each other on that journey, so that it's not like, um, so that they evolve to really understand and connect with each other, and their capacity for connection increases as well, rather than just speaking to needs that don't actually necessarily have connection at their root, if that's making sense. Oh, it, it makes tons of sense, and I've got about a hundred things to say <laughs> on, awesome. on, on on what you've just said. I I, I won't say all hundred of them, but <laughs> I, I've been saying for a long time that I, I don't believe you can grow up in Western culture without being fucked up sexually. Uh, and you know, I'll just be blunt about it. It's just, that's just the case. We're we're bombarded with sexual stimuli, like like you said. You know, they can't find young men that 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 haven't been exposed to porn. When I was raising my son and stepson, they're both in their early thirties now. Um, we had to get rid of broadband internet and go back to dial up because, you know, there's the only way we could keep them from spending all their time, you know, stealing music and looking at porn online. So that's the young men have grown up with that. And I've often said that I would, I would make a guess that 80% of the men I work with have some issue around pornography, either an addictive compulsive, can't stop doing it or, you know, do it on occasion, but feel tremendous shame about it, and it, it's affecting their relationships or their ability to form a relationship negatively. It, it's 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 a huge dynamic, and one of the questions I'll ask sometimes when I'm working with a group around sexuality, I'll say, okay, think back to your very first sexual experience that that comes to mind. Now this could be all the way from your three or four with your neighbors playing, you know, the neighbor kids, I'll show you mine, you show me yours. Um, it might be somebody touching you inappropriately. It might be your first wet dream. It might be the first time you realized you could touch yourself and it felt good and then things happened. Whatever it is, I tell guys, guys and women both, think of your first sexual experience, whatever comes to mind, doesn't matter. And then I ask people, all right, did this occur in a positive environment? Was it something that felt good and you felt good about? Was it something you could celebrate? Was it something you could go and talk to your parents about? Was it something that you could do in the open? And I mean, everybody's, of course, is shaking their head. No, that, you know, everybody's earliest sexual experiences um, occurred in secret, hidden away, shame based, fear based. And then that's how we develop sexuality in our culture. We wrap it in fear. We wrap it in shame. We wrap it in guilt and secrecy and sin and eternal damnation and, you know, whatever negative messages are out there. That's what affects us sexually. And I know I began my personal recovery 25 years ago by going to a 12-step group for sexual addiction because I had acted out sexually. 
And I always kind of thought of myself as a fairly adjusted sexual guy, but I grew up in a fundamental church that that thought if you had sex before marriage or if you even thought about a woman's breast, you're going to hell for eternity. And and here I am, I'm in my early 60s now, and I'm still working on my sexual dynamics and trying to clear out the baggage and just have uh, a, a clean, open sexual relationship. When I say open, meaning with my wife in a, a container of monogamy. And I've tried a lot of different stuff over the years in terms of, you know, finding what works for, for me sexually. And I think, we'll, you know, if we're conscious about this, is something we'll work on till the day we die. And and some of my favorite writers, whether uh, I mentioned David Data in The Way of the Superior Man or uh, Dr. David Snarch in Passionate Marriage, these guys talk about how sexuality is so powerful and goes to the core of who we are. There, there's, it's maybe the most powerful vehicle to actually work on our own evolution and personal development. And, and the book I'm working on right now really does focus in on that. Um, and the, the working title of the book is Shut Up and Fuck Me. And I know it's kind of kind of crass and kind of grabs your attention, but the subtitle is going to be um, something along the lines of uh, a unique guide to intimacy, authentic uh, relationship, passionate sex, personal growth, and spiritual evolution. And I really believe that we can use that vehicle of sex, that container of sex or the crucible of sex, as Snarch calls it, to really find out who we are, clean out our old baggage, learn how to deeply connect with another human being and um, and have a good time doing it. So I'm, I'm glad the, some of the things I wrote about in the book were helpful to you in terms of how to get some clarity about cleaning out some of that garbage we're packing along with our sexuality. Yeah, so let's talk for a moment too about um, the path out of shame and fear. And since those two things are really what's running the lives of so many nice guys, um, what do you see as the important steps to take in order to um, start living more courageously and to take those things that cause us shame and actually turn those around so that we can celebrate them? Well, a couple of things that were part of my early recovery, and I stress these in the book as well. Um, I stress, do not try to do this alone. You did not internalize a sense of shame or a sense of I'm not good enough, I'm flawed, I'm unlovable, I'm defective. That's that's toxic shame. You did not internalize that on your own. You internalized it in a context, often at a very early age, I mean, meaning months old, a year or two, three years old, where you inaccurately internalized events happening around you. You know, mom's depressed, dad's angry, mom and dad are fighting, dad's left, um, whatever, you internalize it that, that you're the cause of that. And children do because they're very narcissistic in nature. They believe they're the cause of everything that happens in their universe. They also have this grandiosity that they believe they can fix it. If they caused it, they can fix it. And that's a lot of what drives nice guys. Well, you know, if I cause, you know, this problem, well, I have the power to fix it as well. And, and both are, are inaccurate. We don't have that kind of power. Um, but so I say, don't try to do this alone. And I, I strongly encourage people to find 
a safe person or safe people to start revealing themselves to. And as I mentioned, when I started out, I went to a 12-step group for sex addicts, and it was all men. And when I got there, I, I quickly realized I wasn't a sex addict. I wasn't having enough sex to be a sex addict. Um, but these guys, like some of these guys were just they, they couldn't stop doing some pretty bad stuff, and they had tons of shame. And so even though I, I, I didn't maybe connect to the extent of, of what some of these guys were struggling with, it was a safe place, and I made a decision after about two weeks there in one of these groups that I was going to use it to just start opening up and revealing everything about me I'd ever kept secret or hidden away past experiences, thoughts, impulses, desires, and I did. And one of the things that hit me, well, two things that hit me. Number one was, damn, I've got a lot of secrets. Mm. Um, I, I didn't know I had so many until I decided to just start talking about everything that had ever been a secret. And the second thing that hit me was, man, this really feels good. This feels good just to put it all out there. Nobody judged me. People accepted me. Um, people were supportive of me. And I thought, that feels really good. And then following that, I, I participated in a number of men's groups, uh, did, did therapy with both male and female therapists. And that was so transformative for me to be able to go and just be me, reveal me, reveal things I had shame about, reveal my dark side, reveal things I'd done or was embarrassed of or wanted to do and just have people not react negatively or have a therapist say, well, let's just explore that, see what that's about. And, and it's like, there was no judgment. There was no shame. That went a long way to relieving um, a, a, a huge amount of the toxic shame that I carried out of my family, out of a fundamental church, uh, out of just society in general. So there, there's that, that piece of find safe people to help you do this. Now, I tell guys, if you're in a relationship, don't turn your girlfriend or your wife into that person. Because no matter what, you don't want to piss her off and you don't want her to think badly of you. So you're never going to feel completely safe with the woman. Now, what I have found that if you find safe places to start revealing yourself to, it then makes it easier to start go revealing to your intimate partner and without as much fear of how are they going to judge me or what's their reaction going to be. That, that can be very liberating. So that, that was piece number one is find safe people to go reveal yourself to, um, take that risk of being real, of being vulnerable, being authentic. And the second piece is Make a commitment to be honest, transparent, to tell the truth in all situations. No, no, no wiggle room. No, no, well, I can just tell this or leave this part out. No, make a commitment to tell the whole truth in all contexts. It, it will grow you as a human being. It will, it will may help you confront every fear that you have, and it will make life a hell of a lot easier when you aren't trying to manage the outcome of things or manage the stories you're telling people or keeping things hidden away where they can't be discovered. Just start telling the truth. And, and uh, that's been a mantra of mine. Um, I, I'm human. I don't always do it perfectly. But every time I, I slip into keeping secrets or hiding stuff away, it always bites me on the ass. And I'm always, ah, oh, what was I thinking? What made me think that was a good idea? Yeah, and I think that also the truth-telling is an important part of learning how to set boundaries. 
so that you're you're not only telling the truth to other to other people, but you're telling the truth to yourself about what you what is or is not tolerable for you, um, what you what you can or cannot sign up for, um, and it gives you a chance to actually have real conversations with other people, your your spouse, your boss, whomever, um, about what's real. Um, so if you don't want to do something and you're able to articulate that in a way that's, you know, not being an asshole, but just saying no in a, in a graceful way, then, um, then it allows you to actually have a conversation about what is acceptable or what is it about that that's not, um, that's not going to work for you. So you can get more to the nuances of something. Well, and you're exactly right. And the reference I made earlier when I was married is that when I wouldn't tell my wife what was bothering me, that was lying. I was withholding information that was important for her to know that she did things that were hurtful. I mean, and if she didn't, nobody ever told her, she might not know. And But by me withholding them and then it coming out in either passive aggressiveness or a victim puke, that was really unloving. And so I never would have thought of, well, me not telling my wife when she does things that hurt my feelings or piss me off. I never thought of that as lying or being dishonest, but it was. And and as you've said, once we start telling the truth, now we've actually got a vehicle for people to start working through and deciding, okay, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do with this? Besides just fight about it or, you know push it away or push it down and not deal with it. And and I found that relationships and life get so much easier when you just tell the truth and deal with, you know, the the difficult issues or the things we're avoiding. And and I would tell the listeners one ways one of the ways I know at least that I'm avoiding telling the truth is anytime I make any kind of an excuse for anything, it's a lie. I'm, I, and I'm lying to myself because nobody else really cares about my excuses. And so whenever I notice myself making any excuse, well, I didn't have time to get that done or I'm going to get around to it. I, I say, wait a minute, Robert, qu- quit lying to yourself. And that's where all lying start. It lies with ourself. Uh, I mean, be, it begins with ourselves. We, we don't share something with our partner or boss or coworker or set a boundary because we're telling ourselves, well, I can't handle the outcome. Well, that's a lie, and but we don't know it's a lie. We believe it's true, and when we start saying, I can handle it, and so can the other person, then it gives us a chance to, to start just fully telling the truth um, in, in open and loving ways. Yeah, wow, so much there. So um, first thing that jumps up for me is um, the importance in relationship of keeping the container of safety. So finding ways to speak your truth that isn't where you're conscious of how will this impact the safety in our relationship. So it's not that you don't share your truth, but you share it in a way that's mindful of of that overall container of safety. And I think that that gets a little bit at what you were saying about, um, you know, sharing those, you know, the things that you feel toxic shame about. Um, those are the things that in many cases may be really triggering for your partner. I mean, that's part of the design, I think, in, in how pe- people are often attracted to each other. So as long as you're mindful that like, okay, this could be really triggering and how can I deliver this information in a way that at least tells my partner they're still safe. And that's partly why I'm why I'm putting the shining a spotlight on on my truth because that actually keeps us all 
safe, um, then that feels like it could be really a net positive for a relationship. And yeah, if we can, and, and I mean, this is something I'm still working on in those conversations because I'm married to an imperfect human being and I'm an imperfect human being. And if we can approach our partners with compassion uh, and understanding and communicate in the ways that we'd want to be communicated with, it, it'll go a long way. And if we can test our perceptions even before the you know we have the conversation, and often our perceptions are not accurate, but we're at we're, we're having this kind of you know fight flight flee, free reaction based on our perceptions, and when we like go on the attack or accuse our partner or blame them, they're they're going to go into fight flight and freeze as well, and I've found. You know, as a guy with with my wife, with a woman, I never criticize, um, excuse me, never criticize, never blame, never attack her person or who she is. I found in general women don't recover from that real well. Men don't either, but I found that it tends to really cut to the core of the female even further. But what I try to do is just say, you know, real cl- as plainly as I can, um, something's bothering me. Can can you talk with me? Can you listen while I talk about what's bothering me? Or I'll say, I have a problem. Can you help me solve it? And instead of saying, you're doing this, I'll say, okay, I've got a problem. Um, it hurts my feelings when you do X, Y, or Z. Um, did you know that? And I just wanted to tell you that. And, you know, could you help me with that in some way? Do you have any ideas about how we could work on this together? And it, it can, you know, the person might, might still get defensive. But if your tone is of compassion and love, your partner wants to stay connected to you. They really do. And even if there are impulses to go on the attack or defend or push you away, um, Often, you know, maybe with a little bit of time or a little bit of, of, of just, you know, hanging in there, your partner wants you to be happy and wants to help the two of you get through it. Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought that up because I think there's this possible distortion where if we say, okay, well, I'm not going to be a nice guy. Um, well, I think part of being a nice guy is being like sensitive and and listening and and sharing my feelings. And so, what, does that mean I shouldn't like I'm going to be a, a guy now? So I shouldn't share my feelings with my partner, or you know that that seems like it could be a distortion. And and um, so I'm curious to hear what you have to say. And I I know you talk about this in your book around that balance between how feelings are shared in a way that that isn't, um, isn't about a manipulation or a covert contract and is actually about um, creating true connection with your partner um, because they actually get to hear you and feel you. Well, this, this is going to maybe sound a little bit ironic or paradoxical because I'm a therapist and I guess a relationship expert, but I often will say that I think, I think feelings are overrated and talking about feelings is highly overrated. And I say that to make a point is that often when people are talking about feelings, um, it can really just be a form of, of emotional masturbation. It's just kind of carrying on about, you know, the internal workings of our mind. And, and I'd say primarily do that with a therapist. Um, but if your feelings are hurt or if something's on your mind, I'll give you an example. If I get an email 
Um, you know, and sometimes if I check my email before heading to bed or before going off to do something and there's an email that I get that requires some action on my part, or maybe it's even, it triggers me a little bit emotionally and it's on my mind. And if I'm going to be with my wife, I will tell her, I'll just say, Hey, I want you to know I have something on my mind. I got an email. It, it kind of created a little bit of conflict inside of me. Uh, it's probably going to be in my mind a little bit. I want you to know that. So you know what's up for me. Okay. That's, that's sharing my feelings. And I didn't need to give her more than three or four sentences just to let her know what was going on inside of me. And when I teach people to share feelings, I, I teach them what I call the two sentence rule. And the two sentence rule is anything that needs to be said can be said best in two sentences or less. And typically if you begin a sentence with, I feel it's probably not a feeling. It is probably a story that you've wrapped around a feeling that's probably a lot more basic that usually is about fear. Um, and usually if you said, I'm afraid, uh, and cause like if I would tell my wife, okay, I got an email and I'm afraid and it's on my mind right now. And, and then she would have compassion for me and she might ask me a little more, what's up. I might give her a couple of the details and she might say, it's going to be okay. You know, well, and that's probably about all the conversation we need to have about it. Um, and, and then we go on, but she knows what's on my mind. She knows what's up for me, but I didn't turn her into an emotional tampon where I'm just gushing and spilling, you know, all my guts of everything to her. Now, with that said, I know my wife's history and I know everything, the majority of the things that have happened to her that, that have triggered um, hurtful or painful experiences. And my wife knows mine as well. We've had those kind of talks, you know, where they're just, they're, they're kind of spontaneous where you start sharing things about your past or things about, you know, what make you the way you are. And I think those are very valuable. Those are very meaningful, but that's not the same as turning your, your partner into your therapist and, and turning to them every time you have inner turmoil. I think we need other resources for that. Mm, yeah, I think it's great to to definitely not have to turn to your partner for everything, um, so that you so that right you uh, you actually I think that helps create some safety um, where they trust that you're um, focused on handling things um, independently of them to some extent, but but keeping them in the loop at the same time. Exactly, exactly. Um, I'm wondering now if we can turn for a moment to um, to the question of how can guys who are suffering from this shame and fear, how can they get in touch with what they actually want um, when maybe they don't even feel like they deserve to have what they want or there is that fear that's holding them back from what they want so they may not even get the most accurate picture. Do you have a sense of where they can where they can start to to really dig deeper in terms of yeah what do I authentically want in my life and what do I want to be and what do I want from this partnership? Well, that, that's a good question, and, and really, in some ways, it, it is it, it it is what no more Mister Nice Guy is all about because it is a core piece for so many nice guys is that 
so many men I've worked with, and this includes me, have a range of feeling about their needs and wants, all the way from my wants and needs aren't important, um, I don't know what my wants and needs are, everybody else's wants and needs are more important than my own, all the way to I'm bad for having wants and needs, and people are going to respond really negatively to me if I express a need or a want. And all of this is stuff we internalized often inaccurately, sometimes maybe not so inaccurately, in our family systems. And I define, I, I, I define um, differentiation, maturity, and integrity pretty much all with the same definition. And they all involve the ability to ask yourself, what do you want? What feels right to you? What's true for you? What are you going to do? It's that ability to ask yourself, what's right for me? What do I want? Um, and then follow through on that, even when there's resistance from the outside, i.e. family or society or partner, you know, the crab's trying to pull you back in the bucket as you're trying to differentiate yourself, or resistance on the inside, i.e. anxiety between your ears in the form of neurotic guilt that says, I'm doing something wrong, I'm going to get in trouble if I make my needs a priority, if I do what I want. And that, that is a challenge. And it's one of the reasons I tell guys, don't. if you're a recovering nice guy, don't try to do it alone. Because your core messages are, like I said, I, I'm, uh, my needs aren't important, or I, don't, I shouldn't have needs, or I'm bad for having needs. You need help, resources, people that can support you in asking those kind of questions. What do I want? What's important to me? What feels right to me? And then follow through on it even when you have anxiety or meet resistance. And some, some guys I found actually can do that by themselves, but not many. Most need a support system. And for me, my definition of, of a, a mature person is a person who's consciously created a number of what I call uh, cooperative reciprocal systems to help them get their needs met. Th this can be friends, family, it can be professionals like an attorney, a dentist, a doctor, a CPA. It can be groups like your church, your 12-step groups, um, you know, a hobby group. It could be meetup. It, but consciously creating any number of, of these consciously created cooperative reciprocal relationships where everybody involved is getting something of value out of the relationship. Now, the, the challenges you've alluded to, I've sat with countless nice guys in groups or individual therapy and talked about making their needs a priority. And that's often when the average nice guy gets a, the deer in the headlight looks, what, what, put myself first, you know, you know, <laughs> fill my own bucket, make my needs a priority. And then the, and when they say, well, I, I don't even know where to start, I'll, I'll hand them a legal pad and a pen and say, okay, let's just start making a list of stuff that you'd like to do. And I've had guys literally just stare at the legal pad and say, I don't even know where to start. And, and at that point, the starting point I usually go back to is, okay, what did you like doing as a kid? When you were a kid and you had free time and could do anything you wanted, what, what would you do? Well, I, I drew or I rode my bike or I went out and played in the woods or, you know, I, I hung out with a friend or I, I played, you know, sports or, you know, I rode my bike or you know, whatever. And I can't, okay, let's start with that. How about we create a situation where you go out and you do something that somewhat resembles what made you happy as a kid when you just played spontaneously. 
And and oftentimes that's a good place to start to get a guy in touch with, okay, back when you did just do things just purely because you felt like doing them, what kinds of things did you do? And and that, and that can be a good place to start. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I also like your emphasis on finding support. And it struck me that part of the those core beliefs that you were mentioning may also be, and like, I'm not only bad, or I don't deserve this, and I'm alone, like, and I'm alone in this. So um, it goes back to what you were saying about shining the light on your shame, um, but having other people who are there to, sure, hold you accountable, but to also um, acknowledge your, your needs in a judgment-free zone, um, seems like that could be so healing and empowering, especially when you're taking big risks. Yeah, I'll give you an example of both, you know, uh, being able to release shame and have support of meeting my needs. And and this may sound, you know, a little bit like, well, how's this about meeting needs? But for me, it really was. Um, early on in my own recovery, I started working with a female therapist and I worked with her for several years. And I remember in an individual therapy session, um, this kind of go back to, you know, too much talking about feelings in relationship. I, I was telling my therapist, I said, you know, at times I just get tired of listening to my wife go on and on and on about all of her feelings, everything she's upset about, all the negative stuff, all this, that. And I said, sometimes, you know, I've, I've, I've heard it. I've heard it several times and she just goes on and on and on. And, um, and the therapist replied, well, you don't have to listen. And I looked at her and I said, well, yeah, you do. You know, if a woman's talking about your feel her feelings, you have to listen until she's done talking. And she said, no, you don't really. You, you can tell her um, you're not interested or you've heard this before or you don't have the time or you don't have the energy. And I said, no, you can't do that. And I said, it's written in stone. My mother trained me. When a woman is talking about her feelings, especially complaining, you have to be there and listen until she's done complaining. That's your job. It's, that's, that's the way the world works. And the therapist said, no, you can say I'm not available. Or I'm not interested. And I thought, oh, man, that's going to go over so well. And I remember the first time I got up the nerve to kind of do it, to set the boundary, to ask for what I want, to, to you know, tell the truth. And she was going on about something that I'd heard before. And I just said, I just got to tell you, I'm, I'm really tired right now and just don't have the energy to listen. Now, the truth was I wasn't interested, but I didn't quite have the balls to just say, I'm bored. This is not interesting to me. Um, and I just said, I'm, I'm too tired. I really can't listen right now. And I thought the roof was going to come off, literally, because she could be loud. And, and it didn't. And she said, oh, okay, thanks for telling me. And I thought, oh, that's it. And I think I like I went and did something of interest to me. And later on, she told me, she said, thank you for telling me you weren't available to listen right then because I went and called a friend and talked to her and got it all worked out. And I appreciate that because if you were like not really interested and like thinking about other stuff or just trying to fix me the whole time, I wouldn't have really appreciated that. So, so, so thank you for telling me you weren't available. And I thought, Huh? <laughs> I mean, this really works. And and so, yeah, I, I couldn't have done that without the support of another person, maybe even especially a woman who was older than me, who said, no, you can tell the person you're not interested in listening right now. And so that 
that was so powerful. And, and I tell the story because maybe there's a few guys out there that can relate to it, but it was supportive in me having a boundary, getting my needs met, dealing with my own toxic shame that I was doing something wrong. And, and again, it goes back to it's so much easier when you've got support systems to help you with this. Yeah. And I mean, how often does that kind of thing happen all the time where, especially when you hear like, okay, I need to be present in my relationship, which I actually talk about all the time on the show, but Mm -hmm. that in itself can become a distortion if you feel like, well, I always have to be present. So that means I have to always be available and you know, in, in, uh, contra and, you know, contrary to my own needs, um, that's where you create problems. So yeah, if I can imagine, um, someone's partner sitting there and just being like, you're not even really with me, are you? Like you, you have no, like, you're not hearing me. You're not, you know, but if that, if none of that actually gets spoken, then it just becomes another source of resentment as opposed to like a breath, a refreshing breath of, uh, of honesty. Um, you know, in the, in the connection. Robert Glover, thank you so much for your time and your, your passion for this topic and your wisdom. And um, I, I look forward to your new book that's coming out. And uh, in the meantime, how can people find out more about you and your work and, and uh, maybe take one of your online classes or something like that? Well, they, they can go to my website, which is just drglover.com, just D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com. Um, they can Google me. They could Google Robert Glover. My, 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 nine year, my 11-year-old stepson last night just before dinner showed me his, uh, his iPhone and with some pictures of me. And I said, oh, you must have Googled my name and gotten my pictures off the Internet. And he goes, yeah. I said, you're pretty famous. And I go, oh, you think so, huh? And he goes, yeah, you are. I was, you know, you've got all these interviews out there and you got all these hits on your website and you got all, you're pretty famous. And I go, well, maybe, I, yeah, I don't know. And like I said, he, he's, he's 11 years old, Mexican, doesn't speak English, but he, he's already doing research on, on his stepdad <laughs> and he, he's impressed with his stepdad. So if you Google Robert Glover, I come up. If you Google no more Mr. Nice Guy, I used to say that Alice Cooper and I come up number one and number two. But as much as I love Alice Cooper, last time I checked, I, I have about the top five spots if you Google no more Mr. Nice Guy. And Alice Cooper comes in at about six. Sorry, so, Alice. Um, you know, he'll, he's, he's, he's making a lot more money at this than I am, so I don't feel bad for him. <laughs> All right, great. And we will also have links to your site and your book um, from our site as well and the show notes. Just a reminder, you can get those by visiting neilsatin.com slash nice guy, all one word, or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions and we'll send you a link to this show guide, all the other show guides, and you can find your way back to Dr. Robert Glover as well. Thank you so much, Robert, for being with us today. Neil, thank you for the invitation and uh, thank you for, uh, for your time as well and for spreading the word about this. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. 
And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.